Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week to discuss our second chunk of chapters from Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters by Rick Riordan. We're discussing chapters 8 through 14 today. Yep, and for anyone who's new to the show, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network that takes a sort of book club approach to reading and rereading young adult literature. We're best friends and roommates, and we wanted to share certain childhood and adolescent books with each other. So we'd figured we'd share those discussions with anyone else who wants to join in a podcast. So I wanted to start this show with the series Percy Jackson and to share it with Charles, who has never read it. And because he's new to the books, he gets to summarize the reading in case anyone in our audience didn't get a chance to read along with us. So Charles, can you get into the summary for us? Sure. Let's go ahead. Sea of Monsters 8 through 14. So we start off with Percy and Tyson and Annabeth getting on the cruise ship that Hermes mentioned in the last uh, reading, but it's super spooky and full of sort of blank face zombies, and Luke is on the ship. They're promptly caught by Luke, who reveals that his plan is to resurrect Kronos, who gains strength every time a demigod joins his team. But of course, our crew escapes. They hide out, but they're attacked by a hydra and eventually saved by Clarice, Together with Clarice, they finally enter the Sea of Monsters, which is the Bermuda Triangle. And their ship explodes. Everyone is separated, but Annabeth and Percy manage to stick together. They have a couple more obstacles. And then finally, they get to Polyphemus, the Cyclops' island, where Clarice also has arrived. Clarice exposes Grover and gets herself captured, of course. And Percy and Annabeth figure out a great plan to help out. Percy has just saved... Clarice and Grover, and they hear Annabeth scream and blackout cliffhanger. That's where we ended. And I just want to say, like, it's our first, like, cliffhanger. We've been selecting readings based on pages and chapters, and they've sort of ended on big moments, like in our first episode when we ended on Percy's parentage reveal. Like, that was a complete accident. But this chapter, um, we finished on a true cliffhanger, which is kind of fun. And I'll just go ahead and But my two big takeaways, one, we have a lot of Percy crushing on Annabeth in this section. I'm sure we'll get into that, the romantics that we are. And two, we're getting a little bit of payoff with the more demigods, which we sort of talked about last episode. We're meeting more of them. And Asia, what did you think? So definitely for my first impressions, I think I remembered this section of the book a little less. I specifically didn't remember anything when they go to Circe's Island. Is that how you say it? Or Cirque? How would, how do you say it, Charles? I'm pretty sure it's Cirque, but I can, I'm pretty sure it's Cirque. I remember when we read the Odyssey, some people said it was Circe, but I'm pretty sure it's Cirque. Well, let's just go with Cirque. But that whole section, I didn't remember that, but I know I really enjoyed how we really get to see Percy turn into a hero, how he saves Annabeth when they're with the sirens, because I'm just going to put it out there right now. Percy Jackson was definitely a childhood crush of mine, so 
I definitely enjoyed getting to see him be more heroic and kind of start to get into that character of getting to save other people. So I enjoyed that for these chapters. Yeah, we'll definitely get more into the Percy Annabeth, and I'm sure we'll talk about the sirens too as we get to them. But right with chapter eight, I noticed that Hermes gives them a Ziploc bag. And I just wanted to ask you, if Chiron gave them $100 to get across the country, how much do you think Hermes gave them to get to Bermuda? Maybe $200? I feel like they don't ever really need human money. I mean, just in these chapters we just read, did they even have any real interactions with humans? I feel like every interaction, yeah, every interaction they had was with monsters. So they haven't had to spend any of their cash yet. So they're rolling in it. For 13-year-olds, they've got a lot of money. They only had to spend one drachma, so they're doing all right. <laughs> but anyway, also seriously, from Chapter 8, we start with Annabeth being panicked about Cyclopes, and Percy even notices it. He, like, mentions, he's like, oh, Annabeth really doesn't like Cyclopses. Cyclopes. Cyclopes. I'm doubting myself. And it's pretty funny that she can't spell Cyclops after we spent last episode talking a lot about the word for Cyclops. Yeah, well, luckily you got to tell it to us, Charles, and we know how to say it correctly. Um, But I wanted to start with Percy's dream, which confirms that Kronos did poison the tree, poison Talia's tree. Yeah, I admit it. I was wrong. Not a plot twist. We just get that confirmation. (laughs) Nice and simple. And Kronos brings us to Luke and... Luke tells us about his entire plan to basically resurrect Kronos. Yeah, and that was, like, a pretty funny moment. Because you brought up humor early on in the show, and I've been looking for it. Because Annabeth says something like, Ooh, it's so gross that you would resurrect Kronos. And Luke says, Well, your mom was born out of Zeus's forehead. Like, I was like, that's a pretty funny. Like, that was a good comeback, Luke. I mean, you're evil, but, like, I'm, lo- I'm living for the sass. But it's actually a a very evil plan. You know, like, it's a true sci-fi villain. Like, we're going to resurrect the embodiment of evil character. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did he say that any time a demigod joins, Kronos gets stronger? Did I get that right? Yes. As more of the Half-Bloods choose to abandon the gods and back up Kronos, he will slowly gain more strength and power until I would assume he's able to fully escape the pits of Tartarus and either take back on his original form or take on a new form. Maybe we're not to that part yet, but speaking of Luke and his plan with Kronos, we also learn when they're on the ship with them, that there is another camp half blood camper named Chris Rodriguez. And he Percy and Annabeth recognize him as one of the unclaimed campers in the Hermes cabin. They also see an unnamed guy hacking at a dummy. The dummy has on an orange Camp Half-Blood t-shirt and the guy like stabs the dummy and everything. So I can only guess that their evil plan is based on destroying Camp Half-Blood and killing Half-Bloods. That's what I took from that. That's so sick. It's so evil. And, like, totally something you predicted when you mentioned that we're going to meet more Half-Bloods. And I just went back and rechecked because we get the son of Hephaestus mentioned last reading, and his name is Charles Beckendorf. And I'm betting that he's the spy. He's probably Luke's spy because we got him by name. So we'll see. What do you think, Asia? 
I'm not so sure about that just because I think, I don't 100% remember, but I thought Luke alluded to having multiple spies as in more than one. And so if I had to guess that there were multiple spies in the camp, since we've already met another, since we've met Chris, Chris Rodriguez, who's also from the Hermes cabin, I would guess that it, they're more likely from the Hermes cabin. One, because Luke would know probably more of those campers personally since he lived in the same cabin as them. Two, because a lot of those half-bloods are unclaimed. Not all of them are children of Hermes. Some of them just were never claimed by anyone. So like Luke, they might have more of a disillusionment with the gods because of that. And then if they are actual children of Hermes, they... Hermes is still the god of thieves, and I feel like out of all the half-bloods or the gods' children, I feel like they would be more likely to have questionable morals and would maybe not like the gods as much. So I, I'm i not so sure about that, but we never know. It could be the son of Hephaestus could be a spy. Yeah, quickly. I think you're totally right that the the unclaimed part of it is going to be a big part because it's a true like example of resentment towards the gods because it makes perfect sense. I mean, we know that Luke resents Hermes because he kind of just ignored him. And if you're unclaimed, you're definitely going to resent the gods. And you don't even have to pick one to be mad at. You can just be mad at all of them. So that makes perfect sense that there's probably a larger contingency of angry half-bloods than we know yeah and then also with luke something i just wanted to point out was when he has percy annabeth and tyson being escorted out of the room to be sent to like the dungeon or something i don't remember exactly right before they end up escaping the ship he percy notices that luke turns and looks back at the coffin like he had a troubled look on his face. So I just wonder if maybe there's some kind of blip in the plan that could be coming to light soon. But I just noticed that and wanted to take note for hopefully we'll get answers to that later. I sense Luke redemption. He probably is creeped out by his great grandpa or I guess it would just be his grandpa. No, Hermes is a son of Zeus. So it's his great grandpa Kronos. Maybe he's like, I don't want creepy great-grandpa around. I don't know. We'll we'll find out. Maybe. So then after that, we start into chapter 10 after they've escaped. And they're in the lifeboat. And we end up learning more about some of Percy's powers. And Percy can determine exact coordinates of where he is in the ocean. And they talk about as they shift, as they move from an ocean more into a freshwater river, Percy kind of loses that ability and starts to lose the adrenaline he was feeling before. So he definitely has the most strength, it seems, in saltwater, in the ocean. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's a cool power. I want to know how you feel about the powers because I, if I was Annabeth in this situation, like, I would be a little jealous. It seems like Percy just has so many powers and he's in pretty good control of his powers like when he's like how do we get to the water Annabeth's like I don't know ask your dad and his dad is like here you go water ponies like (laughs) I mean I know he's special but is it fair (laughs) that Percy one can basically do anything he wants that's related to water like if he's in water he's like a peak performance for everything and it's just kind of like written off as well 
He's Poseidon's son. What do you think? Well, I know, I know you're already jealous of Percy. We went over that, I think, in the last episode. But my counter to that is he is a child of the big three, the big three gods. So it makes sense that he'd have more powers than other half-bloods. And from my own perspective, how I feel about it, again, like I said, Percy Jackson, childhood crush. So if I was Annabeth and how I think we are starting to get a hint at a possible romance there, I would, I think Annabeth specifically would be a little jealous just because she is a very go-getter, like feminist, like she's a really great character. And I think she would also want to have power, but I know for me, like it's kind of attractive, but (laughs) (laughs) he's 13. He's 13. This is my 11 year old self talking just to be clear. Fair enough. (laughs) But soon we'll also learn that if you think Percy's powerful now, I'm just going to throw it in here and we'll talk more about it later. But how we learn Annabeth finally tells about the prophecy that him as the child of the big three, if he makes it to his 16th birthday, he has the power to either destroy or save the gods. So he's very powerful. But speaking on jealousy, Percy actually gets jealous when he gets jealous and he even identifies it in the book because he's like, I feel a certain way. And he's like, I think I'm jealous. And he gets jealous when Annabeth talks about her time with Talia and Luke. So I'm like, ooh, now is he kind of interested in her, like, or doesn't know it yet? But what'd you think? I think he, I wrote that down too. I definitely think he's jealous of her relationship with Luke. Yeah. Especially like she was younger. Luke was like older and like probably more attractive and. Okay, but Luke is like way older. We Luke's like 19 and they're like. 12, 13, like, that's disgusting. <laughs> but I, I understand everybody has, you know, your crush on somebody who's older, oh. but he's, like, way out of her league. Like, way, not out of her league, out of her age range. Also, he was protecting her when she was a little girl. Yeah. And they've been at Camp Half-Blood together for a while. Like, they've been there for the longest amount of time of anyone, the two of them together. And so they probably have a lot of bonding from that, that, like, when everyone else goes away for the summer, it's just like five kids who are stuck there all summer and they're already, they already know each other. So I totally get why Percy would be jealous of Annabeth's relationship with Luke or what he thinks Annabeth's relationship with Luke is. Yeah. And then going into more in depth on Talia, Annabeth talks about how sometimes she thinks that if Talia were still around, she might agree with what Luke is saying about tearing everything down with the gods and starting over afresh. And she tells Percy how much he reminds her of Talia and how Talia also would get angry with her father, Zeus, sometimes. But she personally believes that Talia wouldn't ever turn against the gods and Percy agrees that he, at this point, doesn't feel like he would ever do that either and right when Annabeth is finally going to tell us what happened with her Talia and Luke and a Cyclops and why she's afraid or just hates Cyclops Tyson comes in and interrupts yeah that was pretty classic it was like she's about to riff on Cyclops and then we get one right there but we're definitely getting the indication that like her dislike of Cyclops is also tied to what happened with Talia 
and that there's a very particular reason why Annabeth will not trust them. Right after that, we get the whole monster chain with the Hydra and the fast food restaurants are monsters. And I thought it was a little ridiculous, but do you want to explain it, Asia? Because I'm like, yeah, can you explain it? Because I was like, am I getting this right? Sure. So basically, to my understanding, it's more world building. And Annabeth explains basically that the reason chains like fast food chains or shopping mall chains maybe multiply so quickly is because they are tied to a monster life form. So when Percy ends up cutting off one of the Hydra heads and it turns into two, that means that in this case, the monster donut shop, another one has just opened somewhere else. And I personally, that was an interesting explanation, but I was more just curious because it makes sense for the Hydra with when, you know, when you cut off a head two forms. So that makes sense. It's building more, but how would that work with other monsters? Yeah, I don't know. It felt, it felt a little episodic sort of like, we're never going to mention these monster chains again. And so I was like, yeah, let's just like move on from this chapter. It was a cute little comment to Ari on corporate greed. But most importantly, we got our dramatic Hydra fight and Clarice quite literally showing up to blow everything up. And I couldn't help reading every the whole conversation in that chapter and the next one that she's having with Percy and Annabeth. She's almost a caricature of an anti-hero because her solution is always explosion and violence. And it's... It's not even nuance. It's just like, I'm going to blow it up. And they're like, you can't do that. And she's like, watch me try. And like, she's clearly going for the right thing. Obviously, we don't like her, but like, she's clearly on the half-blood side. Like, she's on our team. She's just ridiculous. And I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, she's a true daughter of Ares. Her entire strategy, even for getting through the Sea of Monsters, is to just blow everything up. And... She also doesn't want to accept help from anyone, especially Percy, not Percy and Annabeth. But she also seems to suggest, or almost says, but then stops herself, that maybe the Oracle warned her that she might fail the quest. Oh, you thought it was that. My mind didn't even go there. I mean, I definitely clocked it when it said, when she was, they asked her at the Oracle and she got like all awkward. But I figured it was something like, that Percy would inevitably help or she would help would come to her in a way that she does not want or something like that. And something that left enough room for interpretation that like she knows she cannot achieve the quest on her own, but that it gave a, I figured the Oracle must've given her enough room for interpretation that she could just go it alone without the two crewmates. But maybe the Oracle, maybe you're right. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that, but honestly, for someone like Clarice, I feel like even if the Oracle said she needed someone's help, for example, Percy or Annabeth, I think that would be considered a failure to her because she couldn't do it on her own. So it's kind of one in the same, I think. I agree. But since we're on Clarice, we can also talk about her dad, Ares, and how he was briefly, he briefly showed up for a second there. I just want to say, what a prick. He's such garbage. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I won't interrupt you. Go ahead. Um, well, yes, what I wrote in my notes was, you know, we just love the blatant sexism when Aries tells Clarice that 
you know, he should have chosen one of his sons to do the quest since apparently she's incapable. But, and he also screams at her that she better succeed in this quest or else. And that also, besides, you know, all the sexist stuff, it made me just wonder, like, why is he so invested in this? Is it just because he likes to win and he wants a child of his to get a win? But it seemed a little bit more aggressive than that. He was really yelling at her like it was life or death or something. Yeah, I definitely noticed. Also, we haven't really seen, like, the last quest that Percy had was pretty important, but Poseidon still never felt the need to show up himself. Like, we saw Ares show up because it was in his self-interest to do that. So I think you're right. The fact that Ares shows up at all means that, like, he cares. But I wonder, because he doesn't seem like he cares that much about Camp Half-Blood or Olympus, because he was trying to sort of destabilize that last book, but maybe he thinks that, you know, having an Olympus to destabilize is better than being subject to his evil dad, Kronos. So maybe that's what it is. And just while we're on the topic of Ares' sexism, life lesson for any men listening, or actually for anyone, don't call people, especially adults, little girl. It's just stupid and pejorative, and it's rude. And just don't do it. Like, just don't do it. It's not necessary. Um... I will stop preaching, but I definitely think that Ares is our worst Olympian yet. At least I think so. For the little girl comment, are you saying, did Ares say that to Clarice? Yeah. Okay. Devil's advocate here. Technically, she is his little girl and she's a child, but your statement still stands true. Nobody should call an adult a little girl, but she's technically a child. Clarice, I think, is in the middle of like Annabeth and Luke's age. So she might be like 15 maybe if I, if I had to guess, unless she's younger, like Percy and Annabeth, mm-hmm. but she might be a little bit older, but, and technically Ares is her father. I don't think that he needed to be so aggressive. And again, sexist comment, unnecessary, but I, I also do not like Ares. I mean, not, not my kind of person, <laughs> way too aggressive. Yeah. I guess maybe more of, cause I think that Ares is his oldest half blood child. And I think maybe that's what I... I think Wait. she's his oldest demigod's child. Uh, Clarice is Ares' oldest demigod child. But what she's about... sort of the leader of her house. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe well, I'm just we, assuming. Well, that's something that we just wouldn't know. Because, like, Annabeth's the leader of Athena. And she's not the oldest. But she's been there the longest. So I don't know if age has to do with it. Oh, like a senior that, that's, thing. That's what I would say. But also, I'm just, I'm just assuming... Clarice is still a technically like a minor, a child. Oh, I thought she was Luke's age too. I didn't think so. But either way, I still think that he's, he still shouldn't have been aggressive to her. I don't know. You know, I don't like, you know, I don't like Clarice. (laughs) I'm I'm like Clarice. She's growing on me every chapter. I'm like, not because I'm rooting for her, but because she's hysterical to me. But anyway, let's move on from Clarice. Let's go back (laughs) to dreams. I'm over these dreams. But I wanted to notice that when Grover asks Polyphemus about the defenses and where the fleece is, I think that was intentional because he knew Percy was watching. What do you think? Definitely. I definitely think it was intentional. Grover knows Percy's watching, and I would think that he would want to help him in any way possible to save him. So I, I think I might have wrote that down in my notes, too. I noticed that, that he kind of showed exactly where the fleece was and the tree and kind of 
almost did like a little tour for us. So Percy would at least have a general idea before they got there. So then after the dream, the ship blows up and everyone gets <laughs> separated. So nice little transition. Yeah, that's kind of how it actually went down in the book. Like they're just talking and all of a sudden they're being attacked and boom. And I want to pause after that because everyone assumes that Tyson is dead and I never did. And maybe it's because I'm a reader and maybe it's because they said he was a munifier or maybe it's because it just seems utterly pointless to introduce him and then have him die before any real action or maybe because it's a world of fantasy and we've already seen Percy's mom come back from the dead, but everyone is convinced that Tyson is dead and I do not think so. And I wouldn't know if you feel the same way. Like, it after that scene, I was like, they're separated. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think he's dead. This is not, this is a detail I actually don't remember, but I would just be kind of surprised if, you know, they introduced him as a new character and then killed him, especially since it's Percy's half-brother. Like, that's the closest bond, essentially. He, like, the first real family he's found besides his mom and like now he knows his dad is beside him but that's a family member so i would hope that they're not going to kill him but i i also feel the same i feel like that would just be a lot but anyway even if he's not dead annabeth definitely seems to think he is gone because she's finally able to open up about why she's been so hostile towards him And this is when she reveals the prophecy to Percy that basically if he does make it to the age of 16, he could be used as a dangerous weapon either to save the gods or destroy them. And that is because he's the only big three half-blood alive right now. And I want to make that abundantly clear that it's not Percy named in the prophecy. It is a half-blood of one of the big three can do this. So I I just want to make that clear. Yes. And even we get another really comedic moment after Annabeth says it, because she's like, everyone thought it would be Talia. And then she got herself turned into a tree. Like the way she delivered it. I was like, that's pretty funny. I mean, morbid, but like, yes, the prophecy definitely does not specify it's Percy. So we think it's got to be Percy or like that Percy right now is the only candidate to fill it out. But I think that with three books left to go, there's a good chance we might have, like, another Half-Blood revealed. I mean, who's to say? Maybe I'm just tinfoiling a little bit. But we get the prophecy. It makes perfect sense. And then that leads us into our Cirque moment. And we start with this funny moment where Percy says that he and Annabeth, he's like, we're so used to traps. This one wasn't one. And I'm like, you've fallen for this trap every single time. Like, it's literally like an elderly, nice woman welcomes you in and you take the bait every single time. Yeah, I even wrote in my notes, like, Percy, you really need to start trusting your gut. You knew when Sir handed you that magical strawberry milkshake drink. You were like, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And then he just drank it anyway. And then he turned into a guinea pig. And of course, Annabeth had to save him because... You know, maybe she's not as gullible, but that was just, yeah, a kind of repetitive moment. Yeah, we just had it a lot. Like, we had it with Medusa, and then we had it with the Echidna, and then we had it with the Casino, and that was all last book. And then we have 
you know, we have this, the Cirque moment. I mean, the Hydra is a little different, but it feels a little bit like, I feel like the signs of the trap were there, and I get it for the first few, and they are young. But maybe I'm like, come on, this one, you knew that there was something wrong with this milkshake, and you still went in. Yeah, I think this, I think that's a pretty common thing throughout the books. So, but I mean, it's a book of action, so they've got to have some action. Definitely action. But anyway, can we officially make Fun Facts with Charles a thing? Because, Charles, can you please catch us up on the myth of Cirque? Sure, I will happily do that. I was talking to one of my friends about the podcast, um, and they were like, you have to come up with a better name for this segment, because Fun Facts with Charles does not sound good. But we're a little open to ideas if anyone has, you know, Charles giving boring history lessons. Anyway, I never thought you'd ask about Cirque, but here we go. Cirque is the daughter of Helios and Hecate, who are both gods, or Hecate, depending on the pronunciation you prefer. And she actually figures into a bunch of Greek myth. It's not like she's just in one, but she's probably best known for what happens in the Odyssey. And she's known for turning her enemies, and specifically former lovers, into animals out of spite. So when Odysseus shows up with his crew, she turns all of the men into pigs, except Odysseus, because she's in love with him, because he's beautiful. And he fall, but, or like she's attracted to him. He manages to make her fall in love with him. And they live together and like have kids together. Like it is, they're like multiple children that come from this union while he is married, trying to get back to his wife, Penelope. But anyway, it's, you know, ancient Greece, but he eventually convinces her to turn his crew back into men and they ship off. But that's why she still turns animals into uh, men into animals because she's lonely. And then, as you said, Annabeth has to come in and save the day. And like I said, yeah, I'm just like, wow, they frequently fall into a trap. But but they manage to get out quickly. So, you know, there's something they're pretty talented, too. Yeah, it was kind of a in and out kind of chapter, but it does get them. They get what? What's the ship called? It was like Queen Queen Anne's Revenge. That's how they get the the pirate ship that they release Blackbeard and all of his pirates. They save them from being guinea pigs, but so I guess the purpose of them going there is they get a better boat. They get a nice ship to take to Polyphemus's island. And one more good thing coming out of the Cirque disaster is that when Percy sees Annabeth in makeup after being pampered, he gets all fuzzy. Oh my goodness. Yeah, there's there's definitely, there's starting to be some hinting at a romance forming there. But Oh, we're about to get into some more of that. Oh, yeah. So now <laughs> we're going to let's transition into Annabeth and the Talia story and when Annabeth goes to the sirens. OK, so do you want what do you want to start with the Talia story or the sirens? Let's go ahead and start with Talia and then we'll do the sirens. So in chapter 13, we finally find out why Annabeth hates Cyclopes. And she basically explains that when her, Grover, Luke, and Talia were on their way to Camp Half-Blood, Grover took a wrong turn and ended up getting them trapped and lost in a maze in a Cyclops' lair. And just like when they're on the ship with Luke 
and Tyson can imitate his voice and the person he's speaking to, all Cyclopes can do that. They can imitate anyone's voice. And that's how this particular Cyclops that Annabeth and their whole crew run into, that's how he lured each of them out. He would pretend to be, I think like for Luke, he pretended to be Annabeth screaming for help and all these things. And for Annabeth, he uses her father's voice, which she even says, I don't know how he knew that. He must have plucked it right from my brain. But he uses the fa- her father's voice to lure her where she finds Grover, Luke, and Talia tied up, I think, like, above a boiling pot or something because, you know, they want to eat them. He wants to eat them, I guess. Gross. But luckily, Annabeth is brave enough. She takes her little knife and she stabs him in the foot and that gives her just enough time to run and cut Talia's rope so that Talia can save the rest of them because, again, she's just a child of the big three, so I'm assuming she's got extra cool powers. Lightning, I hope. I hope it's lightning. But <laughs> probably she can probably like shoot lightning out of her hands or something. <laughs> or shoot lightning from the sky. Who knows? But Annabeth blames the Cyclops ultimately and that whole encounter for Talia's death because the time that they were trapped there allowed for more monsters to catch up to them. So that's why she was turned into a tree. So that's why she just doesn't like the Cyclops, I guess, because she ultimately blames them for Talia's death. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, that you just explained something to me that I... Because when I was reading it, I was a little confused as to why Annabeth blames Cyclops or for, Annabeth, for Talia's death. But the way you explained it, it makes sense that sort of they were overwhelmed because they had to spend so long because they got individually lured out. So that makes sense. And it explains why she sort of doesn't trust them. Yeah. And then also Percy has, when does Percy have the dream? It's somewhere around there. I think it's. We, there's lots, there's lots of dreams. Too many dreams. But Percy has another dream. Oh, I think it's it's right after. There's dreams, dreams, dreams. Always, always. After Annabeth tells Percy this story, they must go to sleep. (laughs) And then Percy has a dream, and in the dream, he sees a girl who he says looks familiar, but he knows, like, he's never met her before. But there's a familiar presence about her, and they're on the ship back with Luke with the coffin, and she says, like, are you going to do anything? And he, like, either doesn't respond or something, and she's like, I got it. And then she walks up to the coffin and, like, rips the top off. And then she says, like, oh, my gosh. And she was shocked and stuff. And then that's the end of the dream. So my comments on the dream are, one, I'm, like, 99% sure I know who the girl is. But I am curious as to why why was she so shocked? What did she see when she looked in the coffin? I know Percy says that to you, like, what did she see? He's so curious. So, Charles, do you know who the girl is? I mean, I'm assuming it's Talia. It just makes sense to me that it would be his cousin. That's why she would feel familiar to him. Also, he's seen Zeus. So if she looks anything like Zeus, the way he looks like Poseidon, pretty good chance that that's why she looks familiar. And it just doesn't feel like there would be any reason to introduce this girl in a dream if there's no... who is somewhat familiar, if it's going to be someone we haven't met yet. I mean, maybe, but... I feel like it's got to be Talia. And 
something about like looking at Kronos or looking at whatever's in the coffin feels like a big three kind of level thing that like if Percy wouldn't have the the stones to do it, maybe maybe Talia did. I don't know. I just that dream was so chaotic to me, but I figured that it had to be Talia. And yeah. Well, just hold on to that and we can move on to the sirens now yeah yeah sirens just you know quick second part of fun facts they're also famous in the odyssey because odysseus also like annabeth wants to be tied up and hear the sirens so he has his crew stuff their ears and he like ties himself up in not unlike sort of like in a biblical like he's on the mast of his ship just hear to like hear the beautiful singing of the sirens and then it kind of starts as like this sort of like pretty feminist manifesto for annabeth to reclaim it and do the reverse because the sirens are thought of as this sort of like evil female spirit that like lures men especially good noble men like odysseus to their death and it's something kind of powerful to, for annabeth to want to do that but only for self-betterment like she only wants to do it to be better at being herself which i thought was kind of cool Yeah, but then that entire plan goes out the window as she jumps off the boat and breaks free from her ropes. And we get a little damsel in distress moment with Annabeth because Percy has to go in after her. And like I said, he was my childhood crush, so I definitely enjoyed reading this scene. I mean, not enjoyed it because it was kind of scary for Annabeth, but I thought it was a cute moment. Yeah, not my type at all. I feel like I'm more Team Annabeth, but... Well, it's not about teams. Like, one is, one is better than the other. I'm more other. interested it's in just... Annabeth. She's more my type. Okay. But we'll <laughs> see, because the next book I picked um, that we're going to read after this, which is also a mythology-based series, and the two protagonists are a boy and a girl. They're actually si- siblings. And I don't remember having a crush on either of them. But if I did, it was probably on the girl, Sophie. But I think that's for a different reason, which we'll get into once we get to the third third or fourth book in that series. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. I, I just want to throw in there, I think my crush also develops from the actor who played Percy Jackson in the movies. <gasps> Logan Lerman. Yes, so him. Cute. He's a very attractive man. So we, we can oh, just, that I think is also one. He's a very attractive man. I also have a crush on Logan Lerman, so that I get. So there you go. There you go. Especially, like, <laughs> I noticed that when I read Harry Potter, because when you read Harry Potter, especially the first few books, like, Ron is so, like, charmingly ditzy. And I like Rupert Grint a lot, but he definitely was not as attractive as Daniel Radcliffe in my opinion. So I feel like <laughs> when you watch those movies, you're like more team Harry. Cause he's like a little more attractive, but in the book, actually Harry's not exactly the most romantically inclined. Ron struggles with it too. But anyway, again, I'm getting super sidetracked. We've got so many more books to cover in this series. First, let's go back to the romance between Percy and Annabeth. I will admit that there's something very romantic about the way he conjures a bubble around them. So she's like leaning on his shoulder and they're like, she's crying. The spell has been broken and he's like got a huge air bubble around them and they're just floating underwater because he's like a magical water god. Like that was pretty cool. <laughs> I will give him exactly. that. And then we get to like a pretty big serious discussion of like fatal flaws. Like Annabeth 
like Odysseus, actually, has this fatal flaw of hubris, like excessive pride. Yeah, and I think in that discussion, I found it particularly interesting when Annabeth admits that she's even flirted with Luke's idea of starting from scratch and rebuilding the entire world. But for me, as I was reading, I was just, that philosophy assumes that you rebuilding the world, you're not going to make the same mistakes as the leaders before you. And even if you don't make the same mistakes, you're still likely to make some mistakes. So I don't know. I just think the whole concept, which I feel like that's can be a theme sometimes in books that people feel like they've been wronged by the world. So they want to take over the world and start over. And it's like, maybe that new world will work for you, but there's always going to be bad things. So like, there's still going to be people who are, unhappy with how the world or system is functioning so I just thought that was interesting but especially for this book specifically I don't understand how anybody could justifiably back Kronos when he's clearly so evil he's coming from a place of hatred a place of just wanting power and so there's no way his world could be any better than the gods Yeah, I definitely think that you're right, that that's the biggest problem of the idea of reshaping a world order, is that maybe you can avoid the flaws that were there, but you are not subject to, like, you could also make flaws, and that, yeah, you're not, you might be able to solve some problems for sure, but you can't always solve all of them, and you might create new ones. But yeah, I do think it was... uh very mature of Annabeth to be able to admit her fatal flaw of hubris. And she even tells Percy that he should really learn what his is because it's good to know so you can control it. Yeah, which begs the question, what is Percy's? And because we're fun like this, what are yours and mine, Asia? (laughs) I definitely think that Percy's is something heroic. Like, it's something like he wants to save everyone because he's like stupidly chivalrous. Yeah, or even just the idea that I feel like, especially because I know you're, like, a little jealous. Like you said, you're, like, people should be jealous of him. Like, he has all these powers. Even maybe just the idea of him, things come seem to come easy to him. Like, he's new to this world, and he's had all this responsibility put on him. And even though Percy does seem to be, like, definitely not arrogant or anything, but I feel like that could be an issue maybe in the future because... He does just, like, he has all these powers, and he seems to be so much better than everybody else, and it's not like he really did any work to get those things. It's just been handed to him. Yeah. He definitely, I feel like that's possibly true. So what's yours, Asia? What's your fatal flaw? My fatal flaw probably would be a lack of self-confidence. Even just talking on this podcast, this was a big thing for me to be able to speak because I definitely dislike the sound of my voice, especially since I edit these podcasts. So I hear it a lot now, but you just got to push through. What about you, Charles? What's your fatal flaw? Mine is probably something along the lines of not being able to accept help. It's probably a little more in a Clarice vein that I like to do everything myself and I don't trust other people to do basic tasks, let alone important tasks. So I like, I'm, I'm not as trusting. I wouldn't, the way Percy and Annabeth have this like very functional allyship and rapport, I don't, that does not come as easily to me. 
well, you trust me to edit. So I guess I should. That's really great. But who write, who does the script outline? <laughs> but that's because I don't want to do that. Okay, moving on. <laughs> okay, uh, you guys are getting a real inside view into how Throwback Paperback is produced. But if we ever do like a trivia thing, here's an answer. I write the script outline. Asia does the editing. So in our final chapter of this section, we finally get to Polyphemus's island with the very terrifying piranha <laughs> sheep that guard the, the Golden Fleece. Yes. Thoughts on that? It was so funny because I was reading your notes as I was putting together the script outline. And it was so funny because she just writes in parentheses, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally agree. And I think that actually what was really effective by Riordan is that it became more terrifying by not describing it. It would have been one thing if the sheep were like, the sheep viciously ate the deer. But it was, there was a flock of deer or a herd of deer. I don't it remember what the It was one deer, is. single. So there was one singular deer. Okay, I can't read. There was a singular deer, <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's just a pile of bones. Like, they devoured that flesh, and I think that's what made it even scarier. Also, because sheep are so flood- fluffy and cute, and they shouldn't be vicious, but it was terrifying. And then we have my super queen of the world, Clarice, show up, but she exposes Grover. Like, girl, so rude. Yeah, I mean, they say the Aries kids aren't very smart, but... Like, come on, Clarice. But I guess her punishment is that now she has to marry Polyphemus. Just gross. Gross. Yeah, gross. That's disgusting. (laughs) But Annabeth is the true genius because she comes up with a plan to distract Polyphemus by putting on her Yankees cap and becoming invisible and calling him nobody like Odysseus did. So, of course, that enrages him immediately because that's probably his largest nemesis is Odysseus, well, who he thinks of as nobody. And while she does that, Percy sneaks into the cave under one of the normal sheep, not the piranha sheep, just one of the normal ones. Yeah, it's like a re- Odysseus situation in reverse, where they use the sheep to escape in the Odyssey, but they use the sheep to get in. And this is actually our second chapter in a row, where we get Annabeth having a pretty nice parallel to Odysseus, with the sirens and the fatal flaw and the nobody plan, like it's very, there's some really great Odysseus characteristics that we get to see in Annabeth, which I like. Yeah, I'm. it's funny because <laughs> the Odyssey, I think we read that freshman year of high school and that is definitely a book I did not read. <laughs> um, definitely was using, what is it, uh, Cliff, Cliff Notes? Spark or, Notes. Sp- Spark Notes. Anyway, so that's nice to hear that it relates because that all went right over my head since, you know, I never actually read it. I read it in 10th grade and we had to do like a simulation of a council of the gods. I think we had to like put Odysseus on trial and I got to play Poseidon, big three, what, what? But I was very much against Odysseus because obviously it hurt my son, Polyphemus. Anyway. Okay. Um, (laughs) Anyway, that brings us to... Our cliffhanger at the end of chapter 14, where we hear Annabeth scream and we have no idea what's wrong. Yeah, that was our big cliffhanger, but a fun moment for sure, because we get to like really get into it next chapter. Obviously, she'll be fine, but I can't wait to see what happens. And before we go, I know we talked about this, but I just want to be on the record. I think Tyson is still alive. 
What do you think, Asia? I also think that Tyson is still alive. Okay. Well, we're going to cross our fingers because he's a sweetie pie. Yeah. And... Any final things to say before we wrap up the end of this book next week? No, I think that we were talking about this a little earlier on, like the sort of the episodes of these traps. And I find them a little draining and repetitive because they feel like they're sort of the same thing each time. Obviously, it's different because it's a different character each time. But I expect they're probably going to be a part of it because they are exciting, especially for a younger audience. But what do you think, Asia? Yeah, I think it definitely brings in more of the excitement and the action. But I think they're also very functional in introducing more of the Greek mythology and history. So it gives you more of a chance to show off your knowledge of that and for me to laugh at you. So (laughs) especially when you mess up, mess up people's names and stuff or we get confused on the pronunciation. Cirque, Circe, Circa. We'll see. Yeah, I I love when I hear people mispronounce names or like pronounce names that I thought were one way for my entire life. Yeah, we need to start Googling them and then get whatever. I Googled it. Whatever they say, that's what we say. Okay, I trust you. I'm pretty sure it's Cirque. Google, don't let me down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's enough. And I think I'm ready to finish this books and move on from Percy's Freaky Dreams. Okay, great. So we will be back next week with the final chapters from Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters. We'll be reading chapters 15 to 20 for next week. So if you're reading along, go ahead and just finish the book. And just as a reminder, we're going to be dividing the next book in half. So we'll be picking up the pace a little bit. Yeah, I'm very excited to see how Annabeth saves Percy. It's going to be romantic. I can already feel it. Maybe we need to, like, I don't know, like, start writing Valentine's cards. I don't know. I'm just so excited. (laughs) But if you have any predictions or theories or questions, remember that you can always stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the whole Nerd Party network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at thenerdparty. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at cesheeland. And I'm at Asia Bonilla on Twitter and at Asia.Bonilla on Instagram. Remember that we're a new podcast, so make sure that if you enjoyed this, that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Make sure you're subscribed and don't miss us next week. Yeah, hit that subscribe wherever you catch your podcasts. I'm an Apple Podcast guy, so I've got it subscribed there. And have a good one. <laughs> See you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.